Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. There's this place in Pensacola that they call Crazy Casbah. Anybody ever been there? Um... I went there sometime around when they opened, and I did a walkthrough. I did kind of one of those speed walks, right? So this place has a bunch of bins, and they just have stuff. There's no order. There's no separation. It's just like they took, they took leftover goods that didn't sell at other stores, and they dumped them in these giant bins, and then they rolled them into this big warehouse, and you walk through. So, so my first time there, it was on the, like, the $8 day or $7 day. Pretty sure I wasn't buying anything on that day. I was just curious. So I did a quick walk through and I was out. But then it got to the 25 cent day, and that's more my style. So then I took a, a more uh, deliberate approach and I walked through and I picked stuff up and I spent more time in it. That's what we're doing today in Galatians chapter 5. Last week we hit it pretty quickly and we got through uh, about verse, through verse 18. But today I want to take another pass because there are some things in here that we really need to dig up and, and look at it more deeply because I believe that, that the, the message to the Galatians is the message that we're wrestling with today. There are, there are two opposing um, uh, uh, things that lead. I don't even know what words to say. There are two opposing ideas in Galatians. One is law and one is grace. And so... What God is wanting us to know is that we can either live by law or we can live by grace. Can't really live by both. That was the message to the Galatians. They have, they, the Galatian church was set free. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are set free from the burden of the law. And you and I are to live in grace. But so often, like the Galatians, we want to go back and we want to live under the law, dictated by the law, which is ultimately bondage. And if you live by the law then you're going to be subject to the law. If you live by grace, then you're able to live in freedom, and it's a whole different life. And so Galatians chapter 5, I want to start in verse 19 because this is where we really start to understand what it looks like if we're living by law or if we're living by grace. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, the Scripture says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. In other words, it's plainly obvious. It's clear to everyone. There should be no question of, is that a work of the flesh or is that not? And you know, it's, it's interesting because so many times we look at uh, things that we, we do and we're like, is that wrong or is it maybe just kind of okay? And we want to justify it, but in our heart of hearts, if we're asking that question, we pretty much know, yes, it's wrong. And so the works of the flesh are obvious. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not a list that these are the only things that are, are the evidences that you're, uh, you are living by the flesh or that you are giving in to the desires of the flesh. This is just a, an idea. It's a, it's, it's a way of God saying things like this. These are the kinds of things that if they are in your life, you are living for the desires of your flesh. These are the works or the evidences of the flesh. It says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. And then he goes into listing different parts of us that are sin or different things that we do that are sin. Now, sin is anything that is against the law of God, anything that is 
contrary to what God's purpose and plan for his creation is. In this list, we basically have three um, groupings. The first grouping is in the area of sexuality. The second grouping is in the area of uh, morality or in a man-made religion. The third grouping is in the area of human relationships. Now, if you'll examine the struggles in your life, most likely they will all fit within one of three these three categories. It's either a struggle in sex or in, in the area of your sexuality. It's a struggle in um, your morality or your, your religion, right? And that'll make more sense here in a minute. Or it's a struggle in human relationships. If you get these three areas of your life correct or right, If you don't struggle in those areas, there's nothing else to struggle with. You're good. And so what Paul is saying is, you're going to wrestle with these things your entire life, but you are not condemned to be controlled by these things. You have been set free through Christ Jesus, and you have been given that freedom because you've been given the Holy Spirit inside of you so that you can walk through these things and not let these things The sinful things control you, but instead, the Spirit is controlling you. And the evidence that the Spirit is controlling you is the fruit of the Spirit. And so he begins by saying, the works of the flesh are these three, or are are obvious. The first category is the area of sex. I would submit to you that this is nothing new. This is not something that we're just now going, hey, we're in the 2020. What 2022s, and this is kind of a new. No, if you, I always go back to the Romans because, like, they were the, they were the a picture perfect example of who we are today. They struggled with politics. They struggled with power. They struggled with sexuality. They struggled with ego. They struggled with everything that we struggle with. But when the Scripture says this first word, sexual immorality. It's the word pornaya, which is where we get our word pornography, and it literally means anything outside of the bounds of God's intention for sex. Now, here's what that means. That means fornication. You don't hear that word anymore, do you? That means adultery. We sometimes hear that word. That means homosexuality. That means bestiality and all those those other alities that we're not allowed to talk about. Here's what we know. We know that today, if you say anything about these um, sexual, sexual topics, if you say it publicly and then you add to it that these things are a perversion of God's Word, then you suddenly have a target on you. Because everybody wants to say, hey, what's done in your closet or what's done in your bedroom is yours, and nobody has the right to tell you what to do. You're right. I don't have any right, and my opinion means nothing on this. But God has an opinion, but it's more than opinion. God has a law. And what God said is sexual immorality is evidence of the works of the flesh. Now, why is it such a struggle? Because in us, we have this sexual nature. We have this drive, this physical drive that causes us to seek after the pleasure that comes from indulging in sexual activity. Here's the thing, though. That is not an abnormal thing. You should have some sort of desire when it comes to the area of sex. That's the way God made you. That's the way you were wired. You're supposed to be that way. But God said, I've created you this way for a purpose. Here's the purpose. 
The purpose is that so your desire would be for the person that you are, that you are married to, i.e. you are committed to in a covenant relationship, and the fruit of that sexual relationship, which is good because God created it, is not only the fruit of a child, but also the fruit of the oneness of a husband and a wife. Amen? And so here's the thing. When you engage in sex that is within the confines of God's purposes for that, it is holy, it is pure, it is good, it is satisfying, and the results of that, there's nothing about it that is shameful at all. But the moment we step outside of God's purpose for sexuality, there's all kinds of things that bring shame and it brings guilt and it brings all the other things that follow Here's how you know if it's right or not, for the most part, if, if you're a follower of Jesus. If there's conviction and guilt, then you don't have to question, is that right? If you have to do it in the dark, if you can't let anybody know about it, it's not something that a believer should be involved in. Or an unbeliever, for that matter. But an unbeliever is not necessarily going to know the difference between light and dark because it's the Holy Spirit who gives us that. So the first word used here is sexual immorality. Now you're like, glad I came to church today, right? But here's the thing. This one area of sexuality is, is, is uh, um, binding and, and keeping Christians in bondage all over the world. It's constant. It's always in front of us. So if we can figure out how to have victory over this area of our life, that's no longer the bondage that we have to live in, but we can live in freedom. Okay? And the second word is moral impurity. This is a word that in the original language of the text is, is in the medical terms, used to describe a seeping or an open, oozing, infected wound. Just let that sink in. It's an oozing wound that's infected. That's a, if I can be graphic, that's a pus-filled abscess in your body that is just oozing. And it's nasty and it's gross. The Bible says that moral impurity is, part, is evidence of the deeds or the works of the flesh. So it actually is not just... Uh, about sex, it's about other things too, but in this context, it's specifically talking about sex. Anything that is a seeping, oozing, unclean thing in your life, that is part of the works of the flesh. Why that's important is this, because in the Old Testament, you could not come before God with uncleanliness. There were all kinds of ceremonial washings that you had to do in order to come before God. Do you want to know why so many people who say they follow Jesus struggle with actually feeling close to Jesus, with actually hearing God's voice, with actually being used by Him, and Him doing things through them and in them? It's because they have not dealt with some of these issues in their life. Because if you're unclean, you can't come before God, right? What God blesses is a person who's walking and living in holiness. Now, it's not that he can't bless someone who's not, but the amount of power that you will have in your life is directly proportional to how much God's Spirit is leading you, and how much God's Spirit is leading you is often evident by if you're demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit or the works of the flesh. Does that make sense? And so you have this almost a compounding uh, uh, verse here because you have sexual immorality, you have moral impurity, and then you have promiscuity. 
promiscuity, you might have a, a New King James or an NIV, and it might say the word sensuality. It's anything that is, that is illicitly sexual. So it's, in other words, it's, it's anything else that you do in the realm of sexuality that, that, you just, that, that is permitted in your life. When we look at this list, it should be clear to us that the, 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 the window of expressing sexuality is very, very narrow in God's eyes. And yet we, what we have done as humans because of the desires of the flesh is we have opened it up to say, if it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, do it. If it brings pleasure, it's okay. Ah, God's not really against that. But what God says is, I've created these boundaries, and if you go outside of them, you will reap what you sow. The reaping is directly proportional to the sowing. If you sow in the flesh, you will reap in the flesh. If you sow in the Spirit, you will reap in the Spirit. If you give in to your sexual desires in the flesh, you will reap the consequences and the results of the sexual desires of the flesh. But if you give in to the spiritual desires when in, in the area of se the sexual nature of who we are, you'll reap the spiritual benefits of that. Now, here's the deal. This might be uncomfortable for some of y'all. You think it's uncomfortable for you, you ought to be up here talking about it, right? Because we don't talk about sex a whole lot in church, do we? We really don't. But our lives are consumed with it. If you get online right now, it will take you all of about three minutes to have something come across your screen that will be sexual in nature. If you turn on the TV, it'll take you all of about five minutes to have something come across that is sexual in nature. If you watch any movie, if you watch any show, it is sexual in nature. What is the old adage? In advertising, sex sells. It is flaunted. And it's put out there, and it's normalized, but God's Word has not changed. It has not changed. Your prayers are not reaching the, the Father if your prayers are built upon sexual promiscuity. They're just not. God's not going to hear that because you're going against what He has said is His purpose for your life. Now, I want you to hold on, okay, because here's the thing. We will always wrestle with this. As long as your heart is beating, as long as you have eyeballs, as, as, as long as you're alive, you are going to wrestle with this. It doesn't matter if you're 19. It doesn't matter if you're 29. It doesn't matter if you're 90. The sexual nature of a person is always there. But what we're going to have to do is realize that that doesn't control us, see, in our culture, sex uh, uh, leads us, it controls us, and we serve sexuality in our lives. It should be the opposite. We should be controlled by the Spirit so that, it's, that, that, that sexuality is something that is part of us. It's not the reason we exist. Now, here's what's difficult. The younger you are, the probably the more difficult it is, especially if you don't have a biblical outlet for sex. In other words, when Shannon and I got married, where'd she go? She's right up here. She's always here. Uh, we, were, we were 20. And so, like, you know, that wasn't a, we had 20 years to wrestle with this until, you know, let, me, let me just, I'm, I'm going to dig a hole real fast. So, so when, when, when you get married young, 
You, you have someone who God puts you with, and you say, okay, now the two become one flesh. flesh. Now you have the boundaries in place. Now you have a vehicle by which you can fulfill some of these urges. When you wait until you're 30 or 40 to get married, I mean, you see the consequence. I mean, you see the... So it, it's hard. It's difficult. It's one of those things that you struggle with. But here's the thing. Your circumstance of married or not married does not change God's law. So what we want to do is we want to justify it. Well, I'm not married, so let me just change what God said. No, God said what He said. In fact, in the Scripture, we actually have uh, a command for, the, for those who, the, the widows that it's better for you to marry than for you to burn with lust or burn with passion, right? I think I conflated two verses there, but you know what I'm saying. So the whole idea is this is something we're going to struggle with. By the way, it doesn't end once you're married, right? Y'all alive? Right? Pinch person next to you. It doesn't end because, because you can engage in all of these things, married or unmarried. But God said, these are the works of the flesh. I know it's not popular to say that, but I'm not concerned about you liking me. I'm concerned about you walking in the Spirit and having the power of God in your life and evidenced in the outflow of your life. Amen? I want your prayers to reach the heavens. I want God to look and say, that's my servant. There is nothing shameful about him. There is nothing shameful about her. That is something that we can all aspire to have. So that's the first grouping is the area of sex. And the second grouping is the area of uh, man-made religion. It, it's this, this, this search for meaning, this search for purpose, this spirituality and there's two words that the Scripture uses here in verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. So idolatry is, is just that. It's setting up something or someone in place of God. Now, the heart, as, as somebody once said, is an idol factory. That means that once we abolish an idol, we're already making another one. It is a constant struggle with idols. And the thing about today is we don't make idols of brick and stone. We don't, we don't craft some idol and sit it on our mantle and come through and worship it. I, I guess actually some cultures do, but for us, we don't do that. We just have idols of the heart. It could be our job. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in our life. It's anything that is the most important thing in our life. That's an idol. Whatever's above God is an idol, and some of us can have many idols. It can be a job. It can be a job that we're totally devoted to, and it can be a good job. But if that job takes the place of Jesus in our life, it has become an idol. It's, if it's the reason that we live, it's, if it's where we get our sense of purpose and our sense of identity, it's become an idol. And the thing about idols is this, they will always fail us. Because idols are powerless, and idols don't love you back because they never loved you in the first place. Only God can offer that kind of love. Only God. Idols of work, idols of family. There are some people who wrestle with this, that their family becomes their idol. Their identity is in their family. The end result of that oftentimes is a marriage that falls apart after the kids leave the house because the kids were the center of everything. Or it, it becomes a, two strangers living in the same home. 
That might be one indication that family became an idol. Another, another thing that could be an idol is, is sports. Now look, it used to be that preachers talked about this all the time, and then we just kind of got like, well, it's just the way that it is. But let's go ahead and bring it back. Listen, when sports always wins, sports is an idol. Let me just, when, it, when anything always wins, it's an idol. Here's the interesting thing. Parents will oftentimes justify missing church multiple Sundays because of the team because they made a commitment to the team. You hear it all the time, right? We committed to the team to be there. And when my kid commits to something, they got to be there. Just think that through. Just, Just think of the natural consequences of that. Essentially what you're saying as a parent is, if you make a commitment, keep it. But our commitment is not to our church family. Our commitment is to our team family. Now, is anything wrong with sports? No, not at all. Should we play sports? Yeah, sure. If you can shoot a, shoot a basketball, if you can throw a ball, if you can swing a bat, that's awesome. You should do it. But anytime there's a competition between two things in your life, whichever one regularly wins is your God. Amen? Come on. Now, how could it not be? Whichever one regularly wins. I'm not talking about isolated things. There are some things that you you just, I mean, some things you're like, you know what? I'm going to do this this Sunday. I'm not talking about the isolated things. I'm talking about whichever one regularly wins. That's your God. Taking the boat out when you should be worshiping with your church family. Whichever thing regularly wins. You say, "Well, well, I can still be a Christian and not be in church. Yeah, but that's kind of like saying to God, God, I, I, I love you, but I hate your people. Or I love you, but your people just aren't that important. See, the thing is, your actions are evident of your heart. Nobody wants to hear this. In fact, actually, that's not true. The people who don't want to hear this are the people who are in this condition. And I'm, what I'm saying to you is this. The works of the flesh are obvious. And at some point, as the people of God, we've got to look at this and say, you know what? I've got some cleaning up to do in my heart. Here's what I do know when it comes to uh, idolatry. I know that every idol that I've ever made in my life has always failed me. Every single one. And I also know that every time I've abolished, I've destroyed an, an idol, it's been painful because it's been a death of something that I've placed high in my life, but I also know that after every abolished idol, I reestablish or I refine the joy and the peace that God has intended for me. Never do I regret, never do I look back at my broken idols and say, man, I sure wish I had those back again. I've never done that. It's always on this side been a sense of joy and satisfaction and knowing that I did the right thing. So the first word is idolatry. The second word is sorcery in verse 20. Sorcery actually comes from a word pharmakia, pharmakia. And that's the word that we get pharmacy, right? So what was going on was there was a, a, a sense of desiring spirituality, desiring uh, to know God through using uh, substances, now, for us today, it would probably be controlled substances, but it's the same, it's the same thing. I'm going to alter my mind. I'm going to alter myself so I can have this experience of, of, of spirituality. 
The problem with that is it's not real. It's an experience that is being shaded by a substance. And as soon as that substance is gone, the faux spirituality is also gone, which creates a vicious cycle, doesn't it? I've got to do more so I can have that sensation. But to have that sensation, I've got to stay on this. And it's just back and forth and back and forth. The thing about um, sorcery is that it's empty, it's hollow, and ultimately it leads you, leaves you wanting more and more and more. So then we get into the third list. And this is the area of human relationships, right? So you follow me so far. I feel like this is a fire hose. And I'm going through this because I, I only got like three verses down in, at First Baptist. And I was like, I got six minutes left. So I'm, yeah, listen fast here, okay? So the third, third part of the list is the human relationships. If this doesn't describe our current culture, I don't know what does. Actually, all of these do. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy. Does this not describe 2022 and 2021 and 2020 and for however many years we've got? Listen, the first word, hatreds. That is an attitude of your heart that is hatred towards another person. And it can be for any reason at all. It's an attitude that I don't like you. I despise you. I reject you. I'm angry at you and all these other things that follow through with that. And I don't like you. I hate you because of your color. I hate you because of your wealth. Or I hate you because of your poverty. Or I hate you because of your actions. Or I hate you because of your alignments or your affiliations. Do we not see this? Hatred leads to strife. Strife is that constant antagonizing, that constant friction. Oh, if we've ever seen this, we see it now. In a donkey and in an elephant. If we've ever seen this, we've seen that hatred... Because of ideology and then strife that comes out of that hatred does what? It separates us. Here's the truth of the scripture. If you or if I have broken fellowship with another believer because of political affiliation, we have sinned. Amen? If I can't fellowship with you because you have a different social agenda than me, then I have completely forgotten the cross and I've completely misunderstood the nature of the gospel in my life and in your life. We ought to have a place where you can come in and be Democrat or Republican, but if the cross is central in our lives, we should be able to fellowship. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to have strong feelings. I'm not saying that you shouldn't argue those feelings, at least to a degree. There should, that's what conversation and discourse is all about. But the moment we say, I can no longer call you a brother because you don't agree 100% with me, then that is when we have failed and we have sinned against God and we've violated the truth of God's word. You know, I, I heard one time of a guy who was stranded on an island. He was there about 15 years before a boat happened to come by and stop, and they, they beached, and they came up, and they found that there was one guy, and there were three buildings. And this, this uh, group of people on the boat were, were, were talking to this guy and say, hey, uh, you know, what's your story? And he goes, well, I was stranded here 15 years ago. Nobody's come by. You're the first person to come and rescue me. 
They go, man, I, well, get your stuff. Let's go. But, but, but can I ask you a question? The guy on the island says, sure. The, the, the people in the boat said, so I see three buildings. What, what are they? And the guy that was stranded said, well, this first building, this is my home. As soon as I got here, I needed a place to live. I needed to get out of the shelter. I needed to be, to be safe. And so I built myself a home. They go, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. What's that, what's that next building? They go, oh, that's my church. I mean, after I have a home, I, I need a place to worship. And so I built a church. And so, so I'm the pastor, and, and I'm also the, 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 the flock. And so we just, you know, it's, it's a place to worship. So, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, what's that other building? He goes, oh, that's my other church. The first church had a split, and so I had to start a new one. The truth is, we split over the, I say the dumbest thing, we split over the most carnal things. Anytime we get things out of order, we get our, 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 our undergarments in a wad, <laughs> right? I sanitized that one, didn't I? We, we get ourselves all in a wad, we get ourselves all in a bunch, and God says that is not living by the Spirit, that's living by the flesh. Consequently, God has given us a way to do something in that area differently. What's another story? That's another conversation. So hatred, strife, jealousy. I want what you want because I think I deserve what you have more than you deserve what you have. Outburst of anger. You know that Facebook lives and dies by this. In stories or in recommendations or suggestions, the Facebook algorithm and all social media algorithms, they exist to engage you for a longer amount of time. And so what they do is they put things that they know you're going to click on and watch. So if you get on social media, it will take all of about three minutes for you to have suggestions of stuff to watch that will include, if not be centered around, outbursts of anger. Right? Road rage, that's a big one. Right? We always want to see that. Why is it that we were attracted to that? Why do, that, why do we want that? There's something, there's something off in our hearts when we celebrate that which God hates. We should be drawn to mourn these things, not drawn to be excited and enticed by them. I'm, I'm not making a I'm not condemning us. I'm just saying this, this illustrates the works of the flesh, doesn't it? how obvious and how constant it is. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, and here's three more, dissensions, factions, envy. Again, we've never seen this more than perhaps we see it right now. And then there's two at the end, he says, drunkenness and carousing. These most likely refer to the orgies that, uh, have, that were occurring in these days from, uh, from letting go of all sense of morality, all sense of self-control, and just doing whatever the heart of the soul desires. So the works of the flesh are obvious, and the works of the flesh bring forth death. They bring forth brokenness. They bring forth pain. But then, he says, anything similar. So in other words, anything that is not spirit-controlled is deeds or works of the flesh. And those are things we ought to be aware of, and those are things that we ought to put to death. And those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a verse that gets a lot of us. Because we go, whoa, wait a minute. I, I do some of those things. I don't even want to do some of those things. I don't, I don't want to want to do those things. I do want to do it, but I don't want to do it. You know what I'm talking about? It's that my flesh wants to do it, but my, I, I want to be different. 
So, so I must not be. So here's the thing. Those who practice such things, this is a regular practice. This is practicing these things with no sense of regret, no sense of guilt, no sense of conviction. If you are able to do these things without any conviction at all, you need to check whether or not you are truly born again. But if you do these things and the Holy Spirit convicts you and the Holy Spirit uh, uh, constantly tugs, then, then that is probably a sign that you are born again. You're just living and acting in the flesh, right? But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit... So we have uh, now the works of the flesh, plural, the deeds of the flesh, plural. All of these things can be independent. Sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, all of those things can be together or independent. But then in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, singular. So in other words, when you get one, you get them all. You know, out when you're in a country church and you're having one of those uh, uh, spreads that, that's so great for being in a country church, somebody's always going to bring a fruit bowl. And it's never going to be just bananas or just oranges. It's always going to be like this, this mix of different kinds of fruits. We call that fruit cocktail, right? And if you're really country, you'll open the can. It's got the heavy syrup and dump it in, right? Nobody ever says, pass the fruits, right? What do they say? Pass the fruit. Why? Because you get the whole bowl. When you are born again, God deposits inside of you the, the Holy Spirit so that you have the Spirit of God inside of you and, and how much of the fruit of the Spirit of God inside of you is determined by how much you yield to the Spirit. So it's this battle for control. If you give God that much control... That's how much fruit you will have. But the fruit is not just love or just joy or just peace. You'll have it proportionally, but all of it. You'll have a little bit of love, a little bit of joy, a little bit of peace. But when you yield to the Spirit with everything that you have, when you are 100%, if that were even possible, but let's, let's say it is, if you yield to the Spirit with all that you are, fully surrendered to Him, you have a full measure of all of the fruit, all love, all joy, all peace, all patience, all kindness, all goodness, all gentleness, and all self-control. Now, what is, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. It's the agape love. It's a love that is so deep and it's so wide and it's unexplainable, and yet it's there and it just undergirds every single part of you. Here's the thing. If you're controlled by the Spirit, you cannot hate anyone. By the way, hate is not the opposite of love. But, but you, cannot, you cannot despise anyone if you're fully controlled by the Spirit. You cannot wish ill or evil of someone if you're fully controlled by the Spirit. Why? Because love covers over a... Multitude of sin. Love causes you to give grace. Love causes you to say, I get it. I understand. It's not about me. It's about me serving you. Love gives you the ability to, to overlook an offense and hope the best of best for another person. Love gives you the ability to turn the other cheek. 
Love gives you the ability to go the extra mile. Like all these things Jesus talked about, you can't do that without love. But love is only in you, this kind of love, when you are controlled by the Spirit. Amen? Peace. Jesus said it this way. He said, I don't give you a peace that the world gives you. Oh, no, 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 no. The kind of peace the world gives you is temporary and it's conditional. I give you a peace that passes all understanding. It's a peace that is so real and so rich and so deep that you can't even explain it. It's the kind of thing where you're going through the greatest of trials and people look at you and go, man, that's not how I would handle it. They say, well, how are you able to do that? You know, I just have this overwhelming supernatural sense that God is still in control. Peace comes when you know that God is in control. And with love and with peace also comes joy. Joy is this sense of satisfaction, this sense of everything is okay, even though things are not okay. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Think about that. I've got a cross to die on, and yet I, my heart and my soul are full of joy. How? Because it's a God-given joy that comes from the bottom and fills all the way up. It's not something that's temporary that's just on the outside. It's, a, it's an internal thing. Love, joy, peace, patience. Here's one that I didn't know. This is not just patience with other people. This is having a sense of patience, knowing that you can go slow, that you don't have to rush God's plan, that you don't have to make things happen, knowing that God is in control, that God is sovereign. And so I'm going to be patient in affliction. I'm going to be patient in suffering. It's particularly addressing the idea of I am patient even though I'm being afflicted or I'm being pressed on every side. Again, love, joy, peace, pay, all of these things are together. You can't separate them. Kindness. This is a word that the scripture actually uh, uh, in Hosea, had. They, the, the translators had to come up with a word. It's loving kindness. It's this idea of, of this overwhelming kindness rooted in love that is expressed in an inexpressible way, I guess you could say. And that is how you and I are. You know, it, it's funny. When we do something kind for somebody, it really shouldn't be the... The, 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 uh, uh, the exception, it should be the rule. Like you and I should just be kind to everyone always because we should love everyone always because the peace of God rules our hearts always and because there's an inexpressible joy that just doesn't end and because of what's going on in here, it overflows on the outside with kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Because of what God has done internally, the external just oozes out. Amen? And so are you controlled by the flesh or are you controlled by the Spirit is the real question. Are you living to please the flesh or are you living to please the Spirit? Now here's what you really need to understand. It's not a one-time set it and forget it thing. The scripture says uh, in the very next verse, verse 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's not a one-time crucifixion. I'm crucifying the flesh, now I'm, I'm totally Jesus's. Jesus's, that's, I don't know how you spell it. I totally belong to Him. I'm totally uh, 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 filled with the Spirit. No, 
It's a daily. Because again, in verse uh, 25, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is moving. We're to keep in step with the Spirit. So as the Spirit leads, we respond by yielding to Him. If we live by the flesh, we're responding to the desire. So we're just, we're just doing what the flesh says. We are a slave to the flesh. If we're living by the Spirit, we're just doing what the Spirit says. We're a slave to the Spirit. You and I are going to be a slave to something. It'll either be the flesh or it'll be the Spirit. The flesh brings forth death. The Spirit brings forth life. If you look at this list of the deeds of the flesh... In sexual immorality, promiscuity, moral impurity, idolatry. What is striking about that is that there is no love in there. There is no joy in there. It's temporary and fleeting pleasure, but there's no love, there's no joy, there's certainly no peace. There is certainly um, no kindness, no patience, no goodness, no faithfulness. Because darkness and light cannot occupy the same The thing about the crucifixion is this. When the scripture says, I have crucified the flesh, Paul is, is, is speaking of this idea of putting to death that which is not yet redeemed. Not once and for all. There's a coming a time when we will once and for all be redeemed in our bodies. But until that time... It is a constant crucifixion. But in Galatians 2.20, he says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. In other words, my heart has been changed. I am dead to myself. I no longer live for me. I live for Jesus. But as I live for Jesus, the old me keeps wanting to rise up out of the grave and chase me. The old me wants to keep wrapping me up in grave clothes. The old me wants to keep dragging me back into the where, into the place, into the sin, into the brokenness I used to live. But I have fixed my eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of my faith. Because he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. Because our God is a redeemer who rescues us out of the miry pit that we used to be in. Trouble that we have, please hope, please get this. The struggle we have is because we're spending more time trying to kill the flesh than we are trying to yield to the spirit. Here's the problem. Here's why we keep giving in to the flesh. Because our attention is in, is in killing the flesh. We are fighting the flesh, fighting the flesh. And we'll never fight the flesh and win. We will fight the flesh and fend it off for a while, but eventually the flesh will win. What we have to do is turn around, crucify the flesh, and yield to the Spirit. So in other words, in my yard I have these bushes, and I've been cutting them off. Cutting them off, cutting them off. Why? Because they're deep and they're, they're, they're hard to get out. Been cut. Finally, I said, you know what? I am tired of these things growing back. I'm tired of these things constantly coming back up, and I have to cut them off again. So I got out my shovel, and I got out my axe, and I started getting down into the dirt. And I had to yank the roots out. And when I pulled the roots out, they were dead, or the tree was dead. 
in your life and in my life, instead of concentrating on just killing the flesh, of just wrestling with the, 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 the deeds of the flesh, we need to yield to the Spirit. Here's why. The Spirit says the reason you have these things in your life is because your heart wants something other than me. And because your heart wants something other than me, until you get the heart right, you're always going to wrestle with the fruit or with the deeds of the flesh. Does this make sense? This morning, what I'm asking, what, I'm, what, I, what the Scripture is calling us to do is to allow God total access to our hearts. Allow God to get inside of all those places we're afraid to let Him see. Can I tell you something? He already sees it. He knows what's already there. You don't have to be ashamed because shame doesn't help you. You need to stand boldly before the Father with humility. Boldly knowing that you're able to be there. Humility knowing that you're only there because of His grace. So boldly with humility stand before the Father and say, Father, I need you. Take whatever it is in me and move it. I yield to you in every area. And as He brings those to your mind, repent and then Trust Him. There's an old song that we used to sing. It goes like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. That's what we do. We look towards the cross. not back this way. You close your eyes and bow your head. If you're here today, maybe you decided to follow Jesus and yet, yet some of the things in your life, some of the things on this list don't match up with, with who God has called you to be. Would you just go through the hard process of humbling yourselves before the Lord and asking for Him to forgive you and asking for Him to cleanse you Knowing that that struggle may not end, but also knowing that you are yielding to the Father in this moment, in this time. This morning, if you're here or if you're watching by way of TV or social media and you've never trusted Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, the Bible says that you are dead in your transgressions and sin. The Bible says that if you'll confess your sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive you and cleanse us cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Will you trust in Jesus now? You know, it's really very simple. Admit you're a sinner. That's repentance. Believe in Him. And then confess. That's your public declaration. This morning, what do you need to do? Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your Word. I pray, God, that you would let your word grow roots inside of our life. I pray, God, that we would not overlook 
we would not skim. Pray, God, that we would be 100%, as best we can, committed to living by your Spirit. Father, thank you for the work that only you can do. Give us life abundantly. We ask in Jesus' name.